0: So, if you remember, right around Christmas, I preached on Isaiah chapter 9, and at that time I talked about our son's name, Ethan Noah, and I discussed the significance of his name. And if you remember, the name Ethan means strong or firm, and the name Noah means rest or peace. And so as we chose his name, it it was our desire and still is our desire that one day he will grow to be strong or firm in his faith and that he will be a peacemaker wherever he goes. So this morning, I'd like to start out with Uh, the meaning of my name, because when my parents chose my name, they were also very intentional in their choosing. So there are two primary meanings for the name Kevin. The first meaning is kind one. This is why my parents have told me through the years that they chose the name Kevin for me, because it means kind one. Michael is my middle name, and uh, Michael means who is like God. If you remember, it was the archangel that was named Michael in scripture. And so, as my parents chose this name for me, it was their desire that one day I would become a believer and that uh, I would be shaped into his image. So, it's not that they desired for, for me to be God like, but their desire for me was that I would become Christ like. So, the question is have I lived up to my name? So let me bring you back to the name Kevin for a moment because uh, as I said, there's two primary meanings. The first one is kind one, but the second meaning is handsome. (laughs) Now if we go based off of the second meaning, I think we can all agree that I've lived up to that name. But in all seriousness, the question is, have I lived up to that name, Kevin Michael? Have I lived up to this call to be kind? Have I lived up to this this call to, to be shaped into the image of God through Jesus Christ? And the answer to that question won't be found in my appearance. The answer to that question can only be found by examining my actions and my words. So we're in a series right now, and we're walking through the book of John, And so far in this series, we have seen Jesus enter the world. We have seen Jesus perform many miracles. We have seen him teaching and breaking barriers. And the last couple of weeks, we, we saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And then, and then all of the repercussions that followed, because let's be honest, right, that miracle really stirred up a lot of stuff among the religious people of the day. But as we look at our passage today, we're going to see how our Messiah lives up to the very name that he was given, Jesus. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. Now as you're turning there, let me bring you back to that name, Jesus. If ever there was a name that was just packed full of so much significance, it's this name right here. Jesus. What does Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tell us about the name of Jesus? It says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." I'm reminded of the more contemporary song that we sing sometimes that says, What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. Some of you are singing that in your head right now. The name of Jesus truly contains both beauty and power. But, but what does the name Jesus mean? So the name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. Now, Jesus, as we call him today, is actually transliterated from Hebrew and Aramaic from two words. It comes from the word Yeshua, which is the name by which Israel knew God. And it also comes from the, from the word Yesha, which is which means rescues. All right. So from birth, Jesus' name was this announcement to the world that Yahweh saves or that God rescues. Jesus was literally salvation the salvation of God in the flesh. And so our in our passage today as we examine both Jesus's actions and Jesus's words, we will see how Jesus both lived up to his name and how he was the very fulfillment of the promise that was heard within his name. So let's read John chapter 12 verses 12 through 36, it says, the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughters, Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, "'You see, you have accomplished nothing. "'Look, the world has gone after him.'" Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, "'Sir, we want to see Jesus.'" Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified.'" Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so the darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. So as we look at our passage... We see it broken up into two sections. Most of your copies will likely have it broken up into two sections, and uh, and so that first section in your copy of God's Word is likely labeled the Triumphal Entry, and in this section, this is this is where we see the stage being set. We simply see what Jesus is doing. We we see his actions. The second section is likely labeled for you. Jesus predicts his crucifixion. And a bulk of what we see in this section is Jesus talking. We read his words. So first, as as we think about Jesus living up to this name, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, God rescues, let's examine Jesus' actions. So as we look at the first few verses in our passage We see that Jesus was entering Jerusalem for the festival. And this, of course, is is the greatest of holidays, the greatest festival for Jerusalem. This festival that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for was Passover. So the first thing that I want to point out is that Jesus' actions revealed Jesus to be the great Passover lamb. Jesus' actions revealed Jesus to be the great Passover lamb. So we already see the picture described here of the crowds that are there, that are there greeting Jesus. They've, they've heard about this miracle of him raising Lazarus from the dead, and so they've all gathered around as he enters in to, to greet him. But understand, beyond simply being a crowd of people in Jerusalem, There would also be a crowd of unblemished animals, of unblemished lambs that had been taken there to be sacrificed for the Passover. Josephus was a Jewish historian, and he tells us that that one year a census was taken of the number of lambs slain for the Passover, and that number was greater than 256,500 lambs greater than 256,500 lambs. So, so what would have been happening then is that these lambs that were going to be sacrificed, they would have been continued to be herded in, to be ushered into to, to Jerusalem throughout the day. And in the same way that the lambs are entering into Jerusalem, Jesus is Entering into Jerusalem. And although we don't often see it in in the movie depictions of Jesus' triumphal entry, there likely would, would have been a lot of lambs also being driven in at the same time that Jesus is entering in. And so he would have likely been surrounded by all of these lambs that would have been slain for the Passover. Jesus, of course, being the greatest Passover lamb, the final Passover lamb So in addition, Jewish law required that the Passover lamb live with the family for at least three days prior to its sacrifice. And so the picture that we see here in Jesus entering into Jerusalem for Passover is is that Jesus was literally going in to be among the people that he was going to die for. He, He was literally going in to live among the people that he would be sacrificed for. Now, in the same discussion, I think that it's important that we also look back at how John began this book. In John chapter 1, verse 1, when he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then we jump down to verse 14 and we read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came into this world to live with those that he was going to be sacrificed for. He came into this world not simply to dwell among us, but, but, but to be the Passover lamb for us. But hear this, on this side of the cross, on this side of his sacrifice, where we are today, understand Jesus' desire isn't simply to dwell with us, his desire is to dwell in us. That as we recognize the sacrifice that, that he made when he went to the cross as our Passover lamb, that we would allow for him to become the Lord of our life, that we would allow for him to Enter into our life, not simply as the Passover lamb, but as our ever-present Lord. So let me pause right here and ask a very important question. Have you allowed Jesus to dwell in you? Have you allowed for Jesus to take up residence in your life, recognizing him as the Passover lamb, but also as your ever-present Lord And can I just tell you, when Jesus enters in, it is a triumphal entry. When we allow Jesus to enter into our life, the result from our lives is praise. So, as we see Jesus entering Jerusalem, as these people at the time, they believed him to to be the Savior, maybe not necessarily a spiritual Savior, but they at least believed him to be a political or a national Savior for them, as they recognized him as some type of Savior, they began to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, and that word is really just a declaration of praise or adoration, So understand, when we recognize Jesus as our great Passover lamb, when we allow him to enter into our lives, to triumphantly enter into our lives, and to take up residence in our lives, the declaration of our hearts, the declaration of our lives becomes that of Hosanna. Hosanna. The result is praise and adoration. So on Wednesday night, March 10th, our son Ethan, whom we have prayed for, that he would one day grow into a man that is strong or firm in his faith, and we continue to pray that, that, that he grows to be strong or firm in his faith. On, on March 10th, on that night, Ethan got down and he, he bowed his head and he told Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that you died for my sins. And that you rose again three days later, and I want you to forgive me. I want you to save me. I want you to be my Lord. On that day, my son's faith began. And as Jesus entered into his life, our house was filled with shouts of praise and, yes, maybe a little bit of tears. All right, let's be honest. Because not only has Jesus saved me... Not only has Jesus saved my wife, Sarah, not only has Jesus saved my daughter, Emily, but now Jesus has saved our son. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus' actions revealed him to be the great Passover lamb. The second thing I want to point out is that Jesus' actions revealed Jesus to be our peacemaker. Jesus' actions revealed him to be our peacemaker. So, in verses 14 and 15, we we read that Jesus found this young donkey, and he rode into Jerusalem on this donkey. Now, the the choosing of the donkey was intentional on both God's part and Jesus's part. And a lot can be said about someone based on their mode of transportation. If we were sitting out at this stoplight on Watauga Road in 377... Right, You might see a limousine pass by, and if you see a limousine pass by, you might think there's someone important in that limousine, or maybe it's just a bunch of teenagers going to prom. Right. Now, if you saw that limousine, and and it was surrounded by police cars, and it had American flags around that limousine, then you would think, okay, the president is inside that limousine. Now, if you're sitting there, and all of a sudden you start seeing tanks drive by and Humvees, you might get a little worried because the military is driving into town, right? So our mode of transportation says a lot about us. And Jesus' mode of transportation said something about who he is. Now, oftentimes, a donkey would not be the mode of transportation for a warrior, someone that was going to war. If a warrior was riding into town, he would likely ride into town on a great horse, or he would ride into battle on a great horse. But typically, someone that was riding a donkey was, was someone that was a peaceable person, like a merchant or a priest, And so Jesus rides into town on this donkey, and as he rides into town, without saying any words at all, he communicates something about his mission, that his mission is one to bring peace, that he is peaceable, that he is our peacemaker but understand that the peace that Jesus sought to bring wasn't simply an earthly peace. The, the peace that Jesus sought to bring in this world was a peace between God and man. It's Romans 5:10 that tells us that apart from Christ, we are enemies with God. In other words, God is so holy and, and so perfect and so just, and our sin is so detestable and so grave that apart from Jesus there is absolutely absolutely no way for us to have a peaceable relationship with the father the only way for there to be peace between a perfect god and a sinful man is for peace to be made for us and that's what Jesus did when he went to the cross When he died on that cross, he satisfied the requirements of both sin and death, establishing the peace for us that we so desperately need. So let me pause right here and ask this important question. Have you allowed Jesus to be your peacemaker? Have you allowed Jesus to become the Lord of your life, to become the Passover lamb for you, to establish that peace for you between yourself? and a holy God. Listen, apart from Christ, there is a battle that rages inside of all of us. And maybe you recognize there's that battle raging inside of you and you've never quite understood why you have that battle raging inside of you, but you recognize that it's there. Hear me this morning. Jesus is the one that you're looking for to bring peace into your life, to bring peace to that battle. If you will confess your sins, and allow him to be the Lord of your life, then you will find that peace that you were looking for. So Jesus rode in on a donkey, and this action revealed him to be our peacemaker. The third thing I want to point out is that Jesus' actions revealed Jesus to be the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' actions revealed him to be the the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, we're able to see this very clearly on this side of the cross, right? As we have both the Old Testament, the prophecies in the Old Testament, and and as we're able to look at the New Testament and see everything play out, we're able to see how Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. But we're told in verse 16 that the disciples who were there couldn't even see what was happening before their very eyes, so, as we look back at Zechariah 9 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, here in John 12, the, the prophecy is literally playing out before their very eyes, but it wasn't until Christ was crucified, that they were able to look back and say, oh, so that's what was happening when Jesus rode in on the donkey. That's what was happening when everybody was shouting, Hosanna. So let me give you a little nugget of truth here. You may be going through something. You may be living through something right now, and you don't quite understand why you're going through this or or what God is doing in your life through this. But hear me, later on, when God has accomplished his purpose, when God has accomplished whatever it is that he is doing in your life, you will be able to look back and say, oh, so that's what God was doing. So the disciples, although they couldn't see what was happening at the time before their very eyes, when Christ was crucified, they were able to look back and say, so that's what God was doing. Jesus was a fulfillment of the prophecy And so, as we examine Jesus' actions, we already see that that he is living up to his name, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, God rescues. As we see him to be the great Passover lamb, as we see him to be our peacemaker, and as we see him to be the fulfillment of prophecy. So, now that we've examined Jesus' actions, let's examine Jesus' words. And for the sake of time today, we we can't examine every single thing that that Jesus said here in this passage, so let me just pull out a a couple of things for us this morning. All right, first, Jesus' words reveal God's timing. Jesus' words reveal God's timing. In verse 23, Jesus said, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified.'" Now, if you remember up until this point, every single time that Jesus has performed a miracle, he, he has never been ceased, never taken, never arrested, never killed, right? In fact, throughout the entire half book of, first half of the book of John, every single time that Jesus does something, we read him say, the hour has not yet come, but now things have shifted. Now Jesus is saying the hour has come, And the word that Jesus uses here, instead of saying crucified, he uses the word glorified. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So when Jesus uses that word glorified, he's simply pointing to his crucifixion. Because understand, Jesus did not come into this world to be glorified by earthly riches or to be glorified by worldly power. Those things would have had little to no value to Jesus. The glory that Jesus was seeking could only be found through obedience to the Father's will by going to the cross as our great Passover lamb and as the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. So there are a couple of takeaways for us. First, God's timing is always best. God's timing is always best. I mentioned this all the way back when, when we first read those words, his hour had not yet come but I want to mention it again because, because, let's be honest, this is a hard truth for us to grab hold of sometimes, that, that God's timing is always best. And so it's no surprise that we are told time and time again that the hour had not yet come and now, now we're being told that the hour has come because we need this continual reminder that God's timing is best and we can trust in God's timing and let's be honest, we we don't always like God's timing. And if we're really honest, sometimes we feel like God is moving a little too slowly for us. We have been conditioned to getting things at a very quick speed. Right? Kids today will never understand the struggle of dial up internet. Right? Right? First, we had to sit through that horrid sound of connecting to the internet. <laughs> Right, You remember, All right? this horrid sound. And then when we finally got connected, it took forever for anything to actually load on the page. Don't even think about streaming a movie on dial-up internet, right? But now that we're talking about it, kids are never gonna understand the adventure of piling into your car on a Friday night to go to a video rental store to go through the trouble of finding a movie that you, you can all agree on, getting back in the car, going to your house, watching that movie, and then you got to take it back to the video store, right? right? We have been conditioned for things to happen quickly at the speed of want. But that's not always how God operates. God is intentional, and strategic, and so when it came to Jesus being the sacrifice for our sins, it did not happen early, it did not happen late, it happened precisely when God intended for it to happen. So God's timing is always best. Also, if we truly want to bring glory to God, another truth for us, if we truly want to bring glory to God, our heart's pursuit must be that of Christ's pursuit and not of the pursuit of this world. If we truly want to bring glory to God in our life, our heart's pursuit must be that of Christ's pursuit and not the pursuit of this world. We see this very clearly in verses 25 through 26 because after we read in verse 23, Jesus say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He goes on to say, The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus' clear call to his followers is that we would not be consumed by the things of this world, that our pursuit would not be for the things of this world but that if we truly want to bring God glory, that that we would find glory in following Christ, that we would find glory in serving Christ, that that we would find glory in the things of eternity. Listen, if if you find glory in temporary things, you will have found a temporary glory. But if you will find glory in... In Christ and in the things of eternity, you will find for yourself a glory that will never end. So as we examine Jesus' words, we see Jesus declared it's time. And in declaring it's time, he was saying, it's time for me to go to the cross. It's time for me to be glorified. It's time for me to die. It's time for salvation to come. Yeshua Yahweh saves, God rescues. So Jesus' words reveal God's timing. Second, Jesus' words reveal his purpose in going to the cross. Jesus' words reveal his purpose in going to the cross. Let's look at verses 31 and 32 again. It says, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So there's, there's a few things here that Jesus reveals as his purpose in going to the cross and, and all of these things point to Jesus living up to his name, to being the fulfillment of the promise that we hear in his name. So the first purpose is the judgment of the world. The first purpose in going to the cross is the judgment of the world. Now, this could seem like a contradictory, uh, contradictory to what what we heard all the way back in John three seventeen, when Jesus said, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him." But understand, when Jesus went to the cross, the world was judged the judgment for your sins, the judgment for my sins, the judgment for the world was poured out onto Jesus when he hung there on that cross. And the promise for each of us is that if we will turn from our sins, if we will confess our sins to him and allow for him to be our Passover lamb and allow for him to be the Lord of our life, then we will receive the forgiveness that we so desperately need, the forgiveness that is a free gift to us, and we will no longer stand in judgment. We will no longer stand in condemnation for the judgment of the world was poured out onto Jesus on the cross. So the second purpose of Jesus going to the cross, the second purpose was to defeat Satan once and for all. To defeat Satan once and for all. As Jesus uses that phrase the phrase, the ruler of this world, understand that the rule and reign of Satan in this world has always been a false reign born out of the arrogance of his own heart. We see this arrogance clearly at work whenever Jesus is in the wilderness fasting, and Satan goes into the wilderness to tempt Jesus, and Satan offers him worldly power and and an earthly domain. Satan literally had the arrogance, the audacity to go to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to offer him power in this world. But when Christ died on the cross, Satan was cast out. Satan was defeated once and for all. Jesus showed Satan who really had the authority all along, and it was never Satan. In fact, Colossians 2.15 tells us that when Jesus went to the cross, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So just a couple of weekends ago, we had our disciple now weekend, and one of our students gave their life to Christ during that weekend. Now, I've shared the the entire story to, to some already, and I've also written the entire story up in my blog. For time's sake, I don't have time to retell that whole story. All right, if you want to read that whole story, you can go to kevinskinner.net, and you can easily find uh, the story of how this student came to know Christ. But, but as I sat on that back row back there, declaring the gospel into his life, he kept saying to me, I've just got so many demons. I've just got so many demons. Now, I didn't know in that moment if he was referring to literal demons or figurative demons like the way people use that phrase today. But this is what I did know. Jesus is greater than our demons, Whether we're talking about literal demons or figurative demons, Jesus is greater than our demons. Jesus is greater than any spiritual power that might be in this world. And so I continued to declare the gospel into his life until he got down on his knees and cried out to God to forgive him and save him. Hear me, church, if you have Jesus in your life, then you have a power inside of you that is greater than any demon, greater than any spiritual authority, any spiritual power that is in this world, you cannot be overcome because Jesus has already won the battle. So the final purpose that we see today, and we're gonna end with this, the final purpose that we see in Jesus going to the cross was to draw all people to himself. Understand, because of the cross, the invitation of salvation is for all people. The invitation of forgiveness is for all people. The invitation of freedom is for all people. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your economic status. Because of the cross, Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. So let me bring you back to that question one more time. Did Jesus live up to his name? And the answer to that question, as we have examined his actions and his words, the answer to that question is undoubtedly yes. He has lived up to Yeshua, Yahweh saves, God rescues.